We're two-thirds done with a series on troubling images of God in the Old Testament that I've kind of titled, The God I Don't Understand. We've looked at some issues in the Old Testament already, like the law and some of the troubling laws and their applicability. For the last couple of weeks, we've spent time looking at some of the harsher laws and the penalties that came as a result of those harsh laws. And we're going to suspend that for just a moment and deal with an issue that some of you have been pressing for us to get to, and that is, tell me a little bit about the treatment of women in the Old Testament. That seems to trouble me. So we're going to do that tonight. And then we're going to end the series by really talking about the issues like massacres and ethnic cleansing, which many people think we should start with. But as I've told you from the beginning of the series, we've been slowly building up tools. We've been slowly kind of building up a, a frame of mind so that we can better handle that when we finally get there. So if you saw last week, if you've been here, we've been kind of talking specifically about these issues. And I want to point out to you, these are examples of the issues. These are not the only issues, but we can't cover every Old Testament difficulty. So I've picked some that I think are troubling enough that we can at least examine what's going on so that we can slowly build up some tools together. We can think, how would I approach this when I saw this problem the next time around? So for example, we were talking about being stoned for gathering wood on the Sabbath or being incinerated for offering unauthorized fire to the Lord. Also, having been instantaneously killed for touching the ark when it was about to topple over. We've been dealing with those for a couple weeks, so keep them in mind. The place where we really are going is this question. We're not going there tonight. Like I said, we'll get there the next time we meet on this. How do we deal with the troubling images of God that we find in the Old Testament? That's been kind of the series, but when we last met last week, I asked this specific question. A little bit more specifically, I was asking, are all of God's actions righteous because God is the one who's doing them? There were a number of people in here who were arguing for that view. And so I want you just to think about it, and then we're going to come back to it in a week. So I could rephrase it this way. Can we say that God ordering the killing of every man, woman, and child is righteous because God is the one who's ordering it? Is that really the position that we can take? And we kind of ended there last week with this, think about it, think about it seriously, because I'm going to need some answers when we come back together on it. Here's where we're going tonight. We are dealing with the subject of women and how the Old Testament deals with certain troubling images in the treatment of women. Let me start with this verse from Deuteronomy 22, just to give you a flavor of why some people find it troubling. Again, I know some of you have never seen these passages before, so it might be news to you uh, to find that this is in the scriptures. Here's one. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. So let's just get that context straight. If you rape a woman, you can buy off your sin by paying her father a certain amount of money, and then you must marry her, and you can't divorce her. What's missing from this uh, perspective? Yeah, consent, probably to the rape, and also to what else? the marriage. So when you look at a passage like this, it can trouble you because you start to think about it. And I'm not even saying from a 21st century perspective, you can think about it from any perspective. I see that God is commanding that a woman marry her rapist. 
which is a charge that's often made by people who read this passage. Maybe it's a charge you would make just by reading this passage. What I hope to do is end here. This is kind of like the beginning of that television series where now they're going to go back to three days ago, you know, and then we're going to build up to it, right? So we're kind of at the conclusion, and if I can at all get through the slides that we've got to get through tonight, maybe we'll end here tonight so that we can better understand a passage like this. Because as I warned you even last week, many times when we look at scriptures at face value, we've not done enough work to really be able to understand them. Uh, maybe even after I explain this one, you'll still be troubled. But at least I'd like you to be troubled about the right thing. Let's press forward. Going back now, I want to remind you that we've been talking for a number of weeks about how the law develops in the first place. God has an ideal in the garden. It's quickly breached. And then there's the way that humanity exists before God gives the law. I've made the statement that under the law, there's just this monumental leap forward. But it's not to the ideal. It's just a leap forward. And then as it continues, when Christ announces the new covenant, and we have the new covenant, he also brings the law even another huge step forward. But we're still not back to the ideal. Why? Because I don't believe we're going to find the ideal until Christ restores all things in the end. So we looked at a subject like slavery, for example, two or three weeks ago and showed how would this work? The ideal in the garden being everyone equal. Immediately after the fall, you see the harshest treatment of slaves. Under the law, a much, much better view of slavery, although still not ideal. Under the new covenant, a shocking view of slavery, where they're brothers and sisters in Christ with their masters, where they're supposed to love their masters and their masters love them, where there's this statement by Paul, there's neither slave nor free anymore, but still we see the institution continue. And even in our own day, when we sit there and wag our fingers at those people back then, we still see that slavery today exists even at a greater rate than it has at any time in history. Because we're still in a fallen world until the restoration of all things when we're restored back to the original intent that God had, you're going to see that our views on, that we're going to look at today about women are going to mirror this in the same way, that it's, we're not at the ideal we should be. But there's always been a movement forward under God's commands, back to the ideal he originally intended. At the risk of looking really elementary at this, I tried to graph this out for people who wanted to see how it would look. It kind of looks like this that you can almost plot the fall of how these behaviors went from an ideal that we had in the garden to before the law, to how the law increased but wasn't great, to how the new covenant steadily pushes us forward but isn't actually the restoration, until all things are restored in a way we can't even imagine at this point, even beyond probably what was intended in the garden originally. That's something to keep in mind. So here's where I want to go tonight with some verses. I want to start with the garden just briefly, because I think we miss this sometimes, that the original intent was for men and women to be equal. That's the way God created us as men and women, to be equal from the beginning. So I cite on the screen here Genesis 2.24, the intent of man and women being created. It says from the beginning, why? So that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to, cleave, some translations say, bond to, cling to his wife. In our minds, we've heard this so much, we don't really think about it much, but think about what it would sound like in the Near East in a patriarchal society to consider 
that the man and the wife become one flesh, so unified, so equal that they're one. And we think, yeah, that's great, that's a mystery. We use that analogy for lots of things. But in the Near East in which this was spoken, that's a shockingly egalitarian statement to make at all of God's intent that men and women be one. I would dare say that most religions at that time would say, there's no way that a woman could be of anywhere near the substance that I am. It's not possible. That's the original intent. Somebody asked about this. But what about the part where it says that the woman is the helper? I gotta tell you, if there's a word that drives Lena crazy, it's the word helper. She grew up in a church where every woman was told that her ideal was to grow up to be a suitable helper for her husband. And that word just, you know, if you want to tick her off, just ask her how she's doing about being a helper. <laughs> Genesis 2.18 does say, the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I know all of you are immediately thinking of somebody cooking in the kitchen. I know as soon as you heard the word helper, right? It's not hamburger helper. It's a different kind of helper. This is a specific word, and this just shows again how you can easily just read something and say, that seems to me like you're not as good as the man. Well, let's look at the word helper just real briefly. The actual word for helper is aitzer or azer. This word azer is very interesting because this word helper is used of humans infrequently. It's more often used of God. God is the one described as the helper suitable for man in many of these verses. For example, in Psalm 124.8, our help, our azer, is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or Deuteronomy 33, to quote something right out of the law, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help, your azer, and the sword of your majesty. So if women are helpers, well, so is the Lord. And so they don't think there's anything denigrating about saying that I'm going to make a helper suitable for man when the suitable helper most often cited, in fact, I counted at least 16 times that I counted that Azer refers to God and only two or three that I found directly that relate to humans, at least in this conjugation of the word. So that word, to me, sounds like it's referring to something important. So one person's question probably answered there, just in knowing that there's, there's a, again, a very egalitarian statement made when the woman is being compared to a role typically occupied by God himself to mankind. Okay? So that's the beginning. I don't think most of us are going to quibble too much. I don't think that in the beginning God intended men and women to be equal. I'm also going to point out that under the law, there were a number of advancements forward. Here's one. Honor your mother and father. You know, we, we hear that, but we don't really think about the fact that, again, this has got to be strange to the hearing of a patriarchal society. That God would command that you honor both your father and mother, not just your father. It would be typical to say, honor your father. He's the head of the household. He's, he, actually, he actually is in a very important position in the house. Everyone knew you honored the father. Why is mother put in there? I think God equates that. And not just in one verse. I cite Exodus 20, 12. 
21.15, Deuteronomy 5.16, chapter 27, Leviticus 19. Repeatedly, the commands are given to honor both. Again, you could look around and say, you know, it's an advancement forward. Just that God would even command them. Here's another one. The law applied equally to men and women, both to its protections in a lot of ways and even to its requirements. There were many codes that were written at that time in the Near East where women weren't even mentioned because what was the point? I mean, this was clearly supposed to be a society run by men. It was for men. So why even talk about what happened with the women? The head of that household, the male patriarchy, would be the one that would deal with the women in their household any way they wanted. But the law addressed men and women. The law dealt with both at the same time. In fact, it's pretty egalitarian to consider that punishments under the law applied to them both. Sometimes the woman was even favored, as you'll see in a couple examples tonight, in the way that the law came down, unlike many, many codes that would actually disfavor a woman. We okay? Is it troubling you still? I mean, there's a lot of things I'm not mentioning that you could find a specific verse on, but I'm just trying to show that under the law, things kind of moved pretty good. Here's the disclaimer. <laughs> of course, because I'm an attorney, you can't read the disclaimer. It's too, it's too small for you to actually read. The disclaimer is that everything I just showed you is totally true, but you probably could find me an example and cite it tonight that is going to be very difficult to address. I've told you there's no way we could address every single situation, and I'm not trying to gloss over every single problematic passage in the Old Testament. There's a limit to what we're able really to do, but the point was to show you that there was an original intent for equality in the garden. There was a continued progression forward under the law that was a vast improvement over anything that existed before God announced this law to Israel, but still, there's going to be some things that are troubling. I'm only going to address a couple of them tonight. Polygamy, the issue of concubines, and also the issue of the rape that we looked at earlier. I'm going to address just those as examples. Again, just like I didn't address every single instance in which you could receive the, the execution in the Old Testament law, I picked some that are fairly frequently read and cited as problematic passages. So I'm going to pick a couple to show you how these work. Let's talk about polygamy. What's the problem with polygamy? Anybody have a problem with polygamy today? Like, David, apparently no problem. Anyone else, like, not okay with it? <laughs> yeah. You, who has a problem with polygamy? Does anybody have a problem? Morgan, why do you have a problem with polygamy as a married person? It seems impossible to think of. Like, I don't understand that God's intention of that is for two to become one, how, how somehow that can happen in multiple ways. Okay. Anyone else have a problem with it? Monique? For me, it's like two different aspects of it. One, it's always a bunch of women and one guy. It's never uh -huh. the other way around. That's one. Number two, it's the um, kind of like the what I would consider the sexual immorality behind it because it's like, wait till you're married, don't have sex until you're married. Like one person, you're supposed to be with one person your whole life. And like we have these standards and we live by them and we fight for them. And then so what, so the minute you get married, well, for guys at least, and it's like party on, just have a little piece of paper, a little ceremony, and you get like all the chicks you want, well then let's all get married. Like, yeah, shoot, sounds good to me. I mean, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Okay. 
What about looking back at the scriptural period of time? And I'll give you a context. Newsweek ran an article a number of years ago that said that this is what the Bible really says about sex. This is it. Here's the revelation. You guys didn't know this, but apparently Newsweek figured it out. And it says that clearly polygamy was allowed by God. Look at all the people in the scriptures who were polygamous. And they were people that we all look to as the fathers of the faith, like Abraham, right? like Jacob. Like There's people mentioned too, and they're not condemned for it. And then you get to the people like a man after God's own heart named David, and then his son. Oh. I think there's a joke in there somewhere about polygamy running in the family. So, <laughs> but anyway, so there's, there's all of this going on. Let's look at that specific period of time. Not what you'd want to do today. Just at that period of time, why is polygamy bother us then? And what does it have to do with the role of women if we're looking at that period of time? Anyone bothered by it? There go. I'm bothered by David being a polygamist. Yeah, like the woman just becomes like a cow. Like it's like he had so many sheep, so many goats, so many things of gold, and so many wives. And it's like there is value when you don't have to ascribe a number before the position because it makes it it completely denigrates the position by having more than one. Like, by having, like, a split. Like, there is no multiplication. Like, it's all just a vision, like, in terms of, in terms of that, like, yeah, the woman just becomes like a cow. Okay, Jolene? Yeah, go, going back to Jacob, I had always struggled with Jacob's story. He's not my favorite person. And, and I understand that he was tricked by his father-in-law into marrying, um, was it Leah first? And, but I always felt so strongly for her like I always felt really bad for Leah and, and and her just being like the second-class wife even though she was the first wife you know and and she wasn't the one that was truly loved and then and then I think of also like Abraham for example with with a you know his wife and then the the her her maid I have a problem with with the way the women are treated and how they're supposed to accept it they're supposed to accept yeah. what's handed to them like Leah had to accept the fact that she was gonna be the second-class wife okay right I have a problem with the ranking of wives at all. Like, the placement of the tribes of Israel is based on the fact that Leah and Rachel were the first two wives, and then his other two wives were counted as less, and so their children were counted as less. Well, I mean, you could understand people have favorites, right, in life? Yes. Okay, so, I mean, I'm just saying that's probably the reason. Krista? Yeah, I'm also thinking of in the law whenever and in the New Testament, he makes it hard for men to get into a divorce. And he does that because at the time, men would just, hey, if I don't like this woman or if I'm tired of her, then I will leave and go to this woman. So thinking of that and then also, like, I just don't know how you can hold both of them, like how you can still allow polygamy and at the same time say, hey, uh, I want you to stop having divorce. Like, it seems not the same. You can just, hey, if I get tired of this one, that's all right, I'll still keep her, but I will have more. Okay, Ray? Um, just to answer Chris's question a little bit, I actually think that it makes a lot of sense for a character of God to have no divorce in the same place as polygamy, because that means that a man cannot just use a woman and abandon her. He has an obligation to take care of her and her children because they're married. Like, so that, to me, does make sense to, like, at least, if you're going to have lots of wives, which I don't like, at least you have a financial obligation to care for her and her children and not turn them into, like, essentially a widow and orphan. So, a big man has this financial burden. Okay, anyone over here? Okay, so a really interesting thing is, like, the people group that we work with in Kenya, um, they're polygamists. 
And so like it's like almost excruciatingly common to find men with like two plus wives. But the coolest thing that I found was um, like a man and he had his first wife and then her sister's husband had died and so he was supposed to marry her. So he took her as a wife, but he would like he wouldn't sleep with her or anything like that. So she was still considered a wife of his. But like it wasn't in the sense of like a sexual relationship or anything like that. And that was the coolest like redemption of polygamy, like in that context. And because of that, he got extremely persecuted like in the community and like for that. And it's so built in even to like the women's mindset. So like as much as like we hate on men in this, like in communities that work like that, like women know that it's coming. And like they understand that and like they're okay with it a lot of times, which sounds bad, but like that's the culture and that's like they perpetuate it. Like mother in laws encourage their sons, or, you know, or like their son wants to take more than one life. So it's not just the men. Okay, Morgan? Seems to be in the case of a God allows it for certain reasons, because I mean, one of the things I don't know if you'll get to this, but every case of polygamy in the Bible, nothing, a lot of strife happens. You know, it's never like, hey, we had three wives and everything went to Boston. Mm -hmm. Everyone is a really loving, wonderful thing that happened. Like, it always brings problems. So I kind of sense from that God's, we saw his intention to becoming one. Um, it doesn't seem like polygamy helps that in any way. So I guess I just wonder why, if I'm correct, maybe I'm wrong in my assumption, I'm coming from a place where I think polygamy is not really what God would desire. Um, and it always brings problems. Why didn't God just outwardly say this is a problem? Okay, let's go there. Um, first, let's point out, it is not God's ideal. That we saw the ideal. One man, one woman, cleaved together, one flesh, that's the ideal. I went consulting a number of sources on this, and one of the things that I saw was a Christian website that's usually dead on. I'm very surprised by this answer. But they said that the reason polygamy was allowed by God was because there were more women than men. And how do they know that? Because they look at the world statistics today and extrapolate backwards, which is, you know, I don't even know what that is. They have clearly never taken statistics like, we'll just take the 7 billion people that exist now and say the ancient world must have been the same. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. Absolutely, that's scientific. And then, because there were more women than men, women had to get married, so they, they allowed polygamy. If that were the case, we should do that at APU and just get on with it. You know, if that was the, if we were just talking about ratios, if that's what made polygamy okay, it was the silliest answer I've ever seen the site do. I was so disappointed because I don't even agree with the premise. Let me just show, first show you a couple things. We need to remember, as I said the first week, that we have to make a distinction between what is descriptive in Scripture and what is prescriptive. What is just described in the historical record versus what God actually commands or commends. And that's very important because, yes, it's true that we see things happening, like even the example of Abraham sending his uh, slave girl away when he sends Hagar away. But God doesn't tell him to do that, right? There's lots of things we see in Scripture. So let me point out a couple things to help you on this issue. First... I don't see any authorization for polygamy in Scripture. I don't see a place where the Lord says, boy." I don't see that anywhere. It's not there. Okay, let's be fair. Let's be fair. In my view, monogamy is never specifically commanded. This is where the trouble is. Some people feel that, okay, I never see it authorized in Scripture, but wouldn't God have just come out and say that? I, I kind of think that's actually the purpose of some of the Genesis narrative of the creation. 
right? I believe that's part of the reason it's been recorded for us. But it's true that in the law itself, there's never a statement that says, and I want every one of you to be monogamous. It would have been nice for some of you if it was that clear. Let me point out this for you. There's actually a very good verse that seems to be directly on point that polygamy is not allowed. I say it's a close verse because people actually dispute its meaning a little bit, but most people who look at this verse that I actually trust their scholarship would say that this verse, Leviticus 18.18, actually says that polygamy is not allowed. Here's what the verse says. It says, you are not to marry a woman as a rival to her sister and have sexual intercourse with her during her sister's lifetime. Now, the reason this is a little confusing, maybe more information than you want to know, is Leviticus 18, most of it up until this point, has been about incest and all the things you can't do in incest. So when people get to Leviticus 18.18, they assume that this is one more verse about incest. And actually, and many Bibles actually put a paragraph after 18.18, they kind of start a new thought. But many Old Testament scholars argue that this verse belongs with the next grouping. And the reason that's important is because this word sister is not a familial relationship word. The word that's used for sister is never in scripture used to denote a familial relationship. It's actually used to denote kind of like a brotherly love, a sisterly love, kind of like among the people. And the next few verses begin to talk about things in that context, and they're not about incest any longer. So what that means, if you put it all together, it means that it's very likely that this verse actually is saying that you should not take on a rival wife, that a second wife is a rival to your existing wife, that you should not do that. Anyone else look at this, surprised by this, that this verse is even there? Because I was surprised by it. If I had just read that one Christian website, I would have thought, yeah, I don't know, God must have allowed it for some reason, he, only he knows best. And actually, if you look at it really closely, from even a more scholarly perspective than apparently they did, uh, a number of scholars just say, it's actually prohibited, that's our view. It's not allowed. And they actually go through a number of other verses that look like God might be condoning it after the fact and say, no, this prohibition would still stand and there's reasons why he may have said that in other places. I won't go into all of them, you'll thank me for that. Comments? Yes. Nathan spoke up against David when he said he wasn't afraid to do so. So if this was super clear, why didn't he also you know, get after him or take the second wife? Or, you know, why is it? I mean, because I mean, we know scripturally, you know, the writer writes for Solomon. Clearly, everyone knows all those wives he had. This caused a huge problem in Israel, right? I mean, that's made very clear. But why isn't a prophet sticking up against David? You keep going down this road, you're going to blow it, and you're going to bring in all these sin, you know, this idolatry that totally follows. I guess it's all about. So think back to my chart to answer that question. One more time, I'm going to have to assert that this is not the ideal that God is dealing with in the law. Let's remember what the law is. It's a temporary step towards the ideal that God intended to replace with a new covenant. And even under the new covenant, we're still living in a fallen world. I know that all of us would like there to be a command. I mean, if he's going to talk about all the animals he talked about and all the things you could and couldn't eat, there should be one in there about marriage, you would think, right? We would all prefer that. What's interesting about what Morgan brought up, though, is when he speaks to Nathan, it's one of the troubling passages because he says, didn't I give you everything? I'm paraphrasing here. 
Didn't you inherit wives when I gave you the throne of Saul? And it sounds like God might be saying like, wasn't that part of the bonus package you got is I gave you a bunch of wives too? And again, there I'm not going to get into all the arguments because I don't understand the language well enough to say. People say that's not the meaning of give in that way. He's really almost saying like, didn't you receive all of this and this isn't enough for you that you had to actually go take the wife of another and kill him? So he gets punished for the death of Uriah and for his sleeping with Bathsheba after he kills Uriah. And we would also like God to say, and by the way, who told you to have this many wives? It's not there. Ray. I feel like I'm missing a cultural, you know how with everything so far we've been narrowing the troubling down from 70 to 30, but we're like understanding everything. I feel like I don't understand polygamy in this culture, and that's why it bothers me because I read the law and how exacting it is, down to how you kill a bird for its sacrifice. Like everything is so particular and about discipline and making sure you follow all the laws so strictly. And polygamy to me seems like something that is so gluttonous and greedy and about a lack of self-control and about bettering your own life. And so I don't understand where its place is in this strictly regulated and disciplined society. Okay. Let me try to defend it for you. Let me pretend I'm going to defend polygamy for you. It's better than prostitution. I mean, it treats both parties better. It's better than uh, sexual slavery, treats both parties better. In polygamy, the wife has the rights of a wife. And that's very, very important in the Near East for a couple reasons. Her entire ability to provide is not given to her except through her husband. Once she loses her virginity, no one will marry her. And the only way she can be connected to provision and have the rights of protection and the rights of a wife and not be shunned or even worse is if she's married. If I were going to make a case that this is not as good as monogamy, but it's much better than any other result that could happen, polygamy would be better, especially in that society. Come back. How is it right for a man to have many wives? It almost seems like it's just cleaning up after the mess of a man being unable to control his sexual appetite or his desire for more children. You know what? That's a very good way to put it. And I don't know that there's anything in it that would say, like, that's the good side of it for a man. I actually think that, like I've been saying, the law is addressing a sinful people in a sinful world and trying to move them a huge step forward. And part of it may be, as you'll see in a moment when we get to the if cases, there's just some messy stuff going on, and God is trying to say, I'm not leaving it that way. You've got to address it, even the messy situations. Yes. All the reasons that you're giving, like, I feel like basically what we're saying is, this is the condition of culture. This is what was popular. This is what was accepted. So God's going to kind of allow it for a certain amount of time and kind of maybe make some rules around it or whatever. But we reject that as Christians today. We don't say people are getting drunk and partying on a regular basis. So let's just kind of go with culture. Like he wanted their pe his people in the past, like Israel, to be distinctive and set apart. But then we're kind of giving these answers where it's like, well, this was culturally acceptable. It was what was popular. It was what was going on in society, but we could continue to make that argument even today and sin and do things that miss the mark and aren't like making us as sacrifices, pure sacrifices set apart for Christ. I disagree with the question because I don't think God's allowing it. I don't think God's putting up with it. God's saying, don't do it. And he's dealing with a sinful people who won't even recognize that he's the only God. We said that from the first week, like 
when we think of like, why doesn't God just, just give them the law and lay it down straight and give them 100% at the beginning? The, the straight answer is they couldn't even deal with a single law like there's only one God. How many times did Israel blow that one? A simple one, like there's only one God, you worship me alone, and like every five minutes they're building something to worship. Like, I, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have a problem with like people blowing it and like, or even the other verses that we talked about before where people died because they, they sinned or those harsh punishments or the fact that God commanded. Like, I don't have issues with any of that. It was already happening when God even announces the law. Remember, the patriarchs we're talking about, they're even before the law. So the people he chose were already engaged in it before the law is even announced. This lands right on top of a people who are so steeped in practicing it and so used to it that they can't think of another way around it in, in, in any case. But yes, I still go back and say I'd still prefer that he had just come out and said, and you shall be monogamous. It's just not there. Let me press forward if you let me and just talk about concubinage for a moment. This one I won't belabor as much as we did with polygamy. I know why you probably don't like the idea of concubinage, which is like polygamy except the concubine was a wife with a lesser status even than a regular wife. Again, look for what is descriptive as opposed to what is prescriptive. I don't see God saying attaboy to Solomon. In fact, probably just the opposite. From Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, looking forward to the time when Israel was supposed to have a king, it says that the king shall not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. The idea was that this is not going to be good. It's going to hurt the kingdom and it's going to hurt the king. It's going to hurt the people. Don't do this. Clearly ignored. Clearly ignored. Even by the people that you commend like David. But not everything that David did was blessed just because he was the anointed one of Israel that God chose. He was a flawed person in a lot of ways, including the collection of many concubines. Solomon follows suit in the same way. Following that same idea of polygamy, at least concubines were treated as wives as opposed to sex slaves or prostitutes, which in that society, forget the sin that's involved. The same thing is going on here. God is saying no sex outside of marriage, and he continues to follow that even in these versions of marriage we don't like. He's not compromising on that standard, by the way. In fact, just the opposite, you'll see in a moment. Much better than prostitutes and sex slaves. Why? Not just because it's against their will. They would be killed. There's no one to provide for them. No one would touch these people if you did that. This is at least a little bit more civilized alternative, is the best way to say it, yes. And yet I still so strongly desire a certain prescription saying men control your sexual appetite. I see it as such a big thing Morgan? Well, I think it's even, I don't think it's just sexual appetites. Like, I think that might be us reading back into that. I mean, certainly that's one of the things, but I think it's actually maybe even like wealth accumulation or proper or just power or prestige. Like, I don't think it's just sexual appetite. I don't think that's the, the driving force to, to further wives. I mean, maybe one thing. Okay. Let me drive through a couple of things and we'll stop. Monique has been itching to get to the problems that come up when God sees something that's already going on, and we kind of call this the if case. In the law, there is a specific prescription given when God says, if this happens, then you'll do the following. And here's what I want to make very clear. This is not a command to do it. God is saying, if this happens, this is how I want you to address it. In a way, knowing that you guys are going to screw up and do this. 
And I want there to at least be protection for the people involved when this happens. Imagine for a moment that if the law says, if someone kills somebody, you're supposed to go to a city of refuge. Nowhere in that it says you should kill one another. It just says that if this happens, and it was unintentional, go to the city of refuge. If it happens and it was intentional, this is how it's supposed to work. Well, here's an if. If a man sells a daughter as a servant, she's not to go free as male servants do. This one troubles a lot of people. Like, what do you mean if a dad sells his daughter? Is God saying, hey, this, is, this could just come up, wanted to let you know in advance how to handle this. No, he's looking at a very real practice that was going on. Why would anyone sell their daughter into slavery? Why do people sell their daughters into slavery today? Because they can't raise them. Because they're greedy. Because they're sinful. Because they don't have enough money. Because it might be the only way she could survive. I don't know all the reasons, but I know it happens every day. And God was looking down at the people saying, if that happens, here's what you're going to do. I'm not saying this should happen. I'm not even happy about this happening. If it happens, you are not going to be like all the people around you who if someone gets sold into slavery, that's the end of the story. Look at the rest of what he commands. If she does not please the master who selected her for himself, he must, he must let her be redeemed. He's got to let her be bought back by the family at some point for what he paid for her. He has no right to sell her to foreigners. If he selects her for his son to be a wife to his son, then he's got to take her on as a daughter. If he himself marries another woman, he can't deprive her. He's got to give her food, clothing, and marital rights, like a place to live. She's got to be protected if this happens. If he does not provide for her with these three things, she's to go free without any payment for money. None of this is saying, this is what I want you to do. All of this is saying is, in this circumstance, you're commanded to be different than the people around you who would just allow her to be sold into slavery because of the necessity of your family. And that would be the end of it. Whatever happens to her, happens to her. God is saying, no, you people are going to be different. In these unfortunate circumstances that this happens, this is how you're supposed to deal with it. And I'm specifically commanded that she be protected and giving food, shelter. She can become a wife to the son if she wants to, but then she's got to be treated as a daughter. You've got to give her food, clothing, and shelter if you don't want her yourself and you find somebody else to be a wife. Or you've got to set her free. That's a protective measure of women. Here's a situation that we find in Deuteronomy 21 where if a man has two wives, again, we're talking about polygamy, but he's saying if this happens, I want you to at least protect how the different rights of the firstborn are given. If he loves one but not the other and both of them bear him sons, then how are you going to sort it out? And God says, this is how you're going to do it. Whoever was born first is born first. You can't deprive the one wife that you don't love because you love the other. Many people, when they look at the part of the law that comes down to the special cases, are saying he's trying to protect against situations where people need protection. Here's one more example. When you go into battle in Deuteronomy 21, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and you want to take her as your wife, here's what you have to do. There's a whole prescription of what you have to do. What was the standard in the Near East? You just raped anybody you wanted to because they're a captive. You didn't have to marry them. <laughs> Forget marry them. You just raped them and killed them. Or raped them and left them. It doesn't matter. That was the Near East standard. God's standard is if you happen to go into battle and you find someone that you find attractive, then you can take her as what? A wife. Not a slave. Not a conquest. You can't just rape her. You have to take her as a wife. But you, look at all the things you have to do. You have to take her home to your house. You have to give her a month to mourn her family. 
You have to get rid of all the clothes of her captivity, basically get her all like crimped up and everything, make sure she's ready for this, and only then she can be a wife. It's not an express condoning. When you're going to go into war, this will happen, but if you decide to do this, this is how it's going to be done. Again, don't look at this as the ideal. Look at this as a much, much, much better improvement on just raping and pillaging your way through conquest. So let's come back to where we started. Why is it that God would command someone who has been raped to marry their rapist? It's a protective measure. It starts with the if case. I mean, nothing about this condones this. And I would point a couple things out to you. First of all, the word that's used for rape here is actually softer than a forcible rape. It more implies like the seduction of a woman. But let's take it at its worst meaning possible. Let's just take it as forcible rape. Even though most people look at this and say that's not really the word that's used for that. Okay, let's just take it as the worst possible case. Someone is forcibly raped. You pay the bride price that would have been paid as a dowry and you take her as a wife. Sounds cruel to you that she would be a wife? What would be the alternative? Somebody who would never be provided for, never touched, never looked at. Okay, can I make another disclaimer even though I have the small print? It's awfully weird standing here as a man telling you that there's no problems with this. <laughs> uh, I'm fully aware of that fact right now. But I'm not going to use my words for this. I'm just going to point you to the story of Tamar and Amnon in 2 Samuel, where this exact scenario plays out. So we have in Scripture this scenario. In 2 Samuel, what happens is Amnon, who's one of the sons of David, he's so in love with his half-sister that he's got to have her. So he tricks her and rapes her. She screams out, don't, my brother, don't humiliate me, for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Don't do this horrible thing. Where could I ever go in my disgrace? And you, you would be like one of the immoral men in Israel. Please, speak to the king, for he won't keep me away from you. But he refused to listen to her. And because he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Read the next verse, though, as to her response. After this, Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he had for her was greater than the love he had loved her with. Get out of here, he said. No, she cried. Sending me away is much worse than the great wrong you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. Instead, he called to the servant who waited on him, throw this woman out and bolt the door behind her. I felt the impact of that verse when I was reading it and even typing it today. Just the pleas that come of don't do this, followed by don't throw me out. Where am I going to go after you've done this to me? Now that sounds crazy to us, and I will tell you it sounds crazy to me, but I don't think we can sit in judgment on what it was like to live in that period of time and why anyone would act that way. I also don't think because one person acted this way, we should take this as the model of how every woman in Israel would have acted. But it is the intent of what God is saying in the law. Like, if this happens, do not throw that person out. If you've gone forward, you're going forward as a husband from this point forward, no matter what. Because you are to care for and protect these people. Yes? As we read through these protective laws, I can't help but remember the Bible is the product of the culture in which it was produced. 
see it as God trying to show his love for women through these protective measures, and maybe it got muddled in the process, and maybe it got lost in translation. The culture that so deeply believed that women were second-class citizens, and yet there is still a glimmer, like as much as women are victimized all over the world today, there is something there, and I don't like it. I don't like how small it is. I don't like that it's not as direct, but it is there. There is something of an element of God wanting to protect and care for these women. It's not a song that I like it to be. Let me turn that around and say, what if we were talking about our time? What if I impregnate my girlfriend? Which is clearly against God's law because we're not married. He's merciful. I'm not saying this is the ultimate sin. I'm not saying you're going to be zapped. I'm just saying that's clearly a sin. And then I decide I want nothing to do with her. She disgusts me. I don't want to ever see her again. She made me do this and I become this like, you know, whatever I am. Why does it have to be about their time? How about in our time? This happens all the time. And in the midst of that moment, if God were to command today in the 21st century, that if you are going to do this thing where you break my law, one thing you're not going to do is throw her out like the garbage. You are going to pursue her and marry her and give that child a home. And I would add in 21st century, if she'll take you. (laughs) Which I think all of us are searching for. In this case, the reason I cited Tamar is because she's actually begging for that. And while I can't find the textual evidence, Many people believe in the if cases, even about rape, that there is an implied if she'll take you, but I don't know where that comes from because I'm reading the text and the guy keeps saying it and I keep looking and I don't know where it is, but he keeps insisting it's there and I'm like, maybe in the Hebrew it's there, but I don't see it in the English, right? So with that little caveat, yes, we'd prefer to add the if she'll take you, but even in the 21st century, and you might say, well, we're still not equal. Exactly. The restoration of all things has not happened yet, but even today, There would be nothing wrong with God saying that to me, saying, you've already blown it. Don't blow it more, which is the way I read this. So here's the good news for all of you who just can't wait to stop this talk. (laughs) There's only one slide left. Here it is. What do we learn out of this? We are far from God's original ideal. But we continue to strain forwards towards the ideal. And I mean like pushing forward like with every ounce We want to be there like now. But it's not here yet. Not just because God's making us wait, but because we're sinful people who even when we have simple things to follow can't do it. And we hurt one another all the time. And so until he ends this whole thing and we're back with him, it's not going to be the way we want it to be. There's still going to be pain, even in a world where everybody was treated equally, even when there's no polygamy, even when it's all outlawed, people still do crazy things to one another. So I think God's ideal is never going to be established in a fallen world, only under Christ's reign when all things are restored. Let me go back to the disclaimer. To be sure, there's still some problematic passages. I'm not dispensing with all of them. I'm just trying to get you to see the tools of how people deal with them so we don't just wholesale freak out when we see the rape passage. We at least can start to do the work of putting it in context. We need to be careful to understand the context in which it was stated, whether back then or even now. What is God really dealing with with a bunch of broken, sinful people hurting each other, and how do you apply a law to people who are disobedient and refusing to even follow the simple things? But I think importantly, this last point is, 
I think we have to kind of maintain a humble posture and, and avoid making extreme judgments about the realities of life in a distant time and culture. We could get really infuriated by a law that would make someone marry their rapist. But we might not understand what it would be like to be rejected and thrown out after that happened. How you could be doubly harmed, first by the forcible rape and then all over again by the culture in which you lived. Maybe God was extending mercy by saying at least don't harm them further than this heinous thing that you've already done. Maybe that just puts us in a place where we think maybe a little bit more understanding sometimes is needed before we jump to a conclusion about the nature and the character of God or even the people that we see in these stories. And that's all I've got. So this is like if I was thinking like gauging the temperature, it's kind of lukewarm to warm in here. I think when we get to the next time when we start talking about killing, but I expect it to get even a little bit hotter. It's getting more difficult. That's why I put these things towards the end of the series. So at least we had some time to think about them slowly before they happened. Let me do this. Let me close up and we'll go back into worship. Let me pray. Lord, I sense a strong heaviness in this room because we're reaching the edge of our understanding and we're making true the very series that we started about the God that I don't understand. And there's a way that we would prefer you to be and there's a way we'd prefer to understand the scriptures. There's a way in which we would all feel more comfortable. Lord, you challenge us because you tell us that we're to walk by faith and not by sight. Not by having the understanding to every single thing in our hands and this may be one of those issues. But I'm not content to stay there, Lord. I'm asking you and begging you this week that your spirit would illuminate these things further for us. That even right now, as you trouble our spirit, that inside, Lord, you are already working to bring out more truth. And that when we get together and discuss this even further, Lord, may that be shared here in this room so that we may grow together as a body who trusts you and loves you first and foremost. Pray this in your name. Amen.